Our Bible reading this morning is taken from Romans chapter 8. We're breaking into the chapter. We're going to start reading at verse 28. This is a most famous chapter. Romans chapter 8. We'll read from verse 28. Reading, of course, from the authorized version. Let's hear the word of God. For those online, the words will come up on the screen. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay any charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now my text this morning is taken from Romans chapter 8, and we're thinking especially of the Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who's even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Now, I've entitled this message, Instruction Regarding the Intercession of Christ. Now, Romans chapter 8 is a most wonderful chapter, not only in the book of Romans, but in the whole of the Bible. Every word has been carefully chosen and selected under the guidance and superintendent of the Holy Ghost. And every word is full of meaning and full of purpose. Romans chapter 8 is a chapter that's famous for the note of victory and the note of assurance. Listen to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. There's a story told about a certain psychologist and he was talking to a particular patient and the patient was talking about his feelings of guilt and the certain things that were bothering him. And the, the psychologist looked at him and said this, I think I can explain your feelings of guilt. Go on. You're guilty. 
And the man was shocked. You're guilty. You see, let's remember before God that we're all guilty of violating the law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments. And if people would just read and study the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments would show us how sinful we are. Because that is what the law was designed to do. You think of the um, two great commandments that summarize the whole law. Love to God and love to your fellow man. Love to God is first and central. Then love your neighbor as yourself. And the reality is we have all failed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. Worse than that, we've forgotten God. Worse than that, we've forsaken him. We, we have replaced him with our own gods. We have made ourselves into to gods. We, we, we have a love for sin and self. And we live for that. And because we're sinful and because we're selfish in not loving God, therefore we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's why you've got this problem with interpersonal relationships that's leading to the breakdown of society. You see, the reality is this morning that apart from Jesus Christ and the grace of God, we are all guilty, vile, hell-deserving sinners. And we have all mountains of guilt, moral guilt, legal guilt, judicial guilt. And we have guilt for every sinful word, every sinful thought, and every sinful deed. Now, here's a question. How do you deal with guilt? Think of this man sitting before a psychologist saying, Oh, I feel guilty. And he's saying, You're guilty, man. Well, well, how do you deal with guilt? Suppress it? Deny it? Pretend that it's not real? Excuse it? But I'm not that bad. I, I, I'm a basically good person. I'm honest and kind. I've got faults, yes. But the guilt is still there. Gnawing away. And times that guilty feeling is overwhelming. Now here's Paul in Romans 8. And when we come to verse 33 and verse 34, he presents God's answer for this guilty feeling. And God's answer is that he legally justifies his elect children through Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension, and Christ's mediation on their behalf. Now here's a wonderful truth. And it's crystal clear. I want to ask this morning, are you full of guilt today? Are you wrestling with guilt to overcome some particular sin? And that guilt's a stubborn, nagging problem in your heart and mind. It's, it's, it's reoccurring. Some distant sin, some recent sin that's unconfessed and unrepented of. What do you do? Well, here's Paul, and he's saying, look to Christ. Look at the great benefits of the gospel, because in Romans 8, 33 and 34, he presents four pillars of the gospel. One, Christ died. Got to think of his death by crucifixion. God in human flesh offering a once and for all sacrifice for sin. Two, Christ is risen again. There's the doctrine of Christ's bodily resurrection. You see, that's part of the gospel. Three, who is even at the right hand of God? There's his ascension. Literally, bodily, really. Four, 
who also maketh intercession for us. You see, he has just asked two parallel questions. He, he says in verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And then he answers, it is God that justifieth. And then he, he asks this, who is he that condemneth? It is, and then he mentions Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and mediation at God's right hand. Four aspects of the personal work of Christ. And they're all part of the great fundamental question, what is the gospel? You see, the gospel is more than just asking Jesus into your heart to be your Lord and Savior. Or the gospel is more than simply receiving Christ. The gospel is this, that, that Christ died. That Christ rose again. That, that Christ is at God's right hand. You've got to think of his position. You've got to think of his function at God's right hand. You see, it's all tremendous truth, proof that Christ is part of safe. Christ is part of sustain. Christ is part of secure. Christ is part of succor. Christ is part to supply our need and strengthen his people. Why? Because he's at God's right hand. And then you've got Christ's ministration. He's praying for us. So that's what we're thinking about this morning. I want you to think of three things. The foundational basis for the intercession of Christ if you look at our text, it says, Who is he that condemneth? You see, is that not an accusation? In other words, who charges us with guilt? Well, here's part of the answer. An unbelieving world. An antagonistic, ungodly world. The world of the unbeliever. The unbeliever says the church is full of hypocrites. Oftentimes, the unbeliever is correct. They accuse the Christian of putting on a false front. Great pretenders. See, you could come to me and say, Oh, pastor, you're a great man of prayer, and you're a great man at preaching the word. And um, I, I want to tell you what I'd reply to that, that, that I have my struggles too, that, that I have my failures and my faults as well. You see, many Christians do put on a false front. They can display that they're full of self-righteousness. They can display a, a spirit of intolerance. They can be accused of being close-minded and judgmental. They can maybe adopt the mindset, I am right and everybody else is wrong. Maybe even sometimes free Presbyterians are charged we're the only ones that's going to heaven. But that's not right. But I, but I want to say this. When, when you have got this accusation thrown at your face by an unbelieving world, by an ungodly person, oftentimes it's a big smokescreen because they themselves do not love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They do not love their neighbor as themselves. They have forgotten and forsaken the, the living and the true God as God. So, so their accusation is just a smokescreen to mask their own sinful life. Who also lays charges? Well, the devil does. Revelation 12 and 11, he's called the accuser of the brethren. Do you know what the word devil, it implies or it, it, it gives the impression 
One who throws everything against you. Isn't that what he did before God in mentioning in Job? Didn't the same thing happen in Zechariah's day to Joshua the high priest? When he was at the altar, the devil came to accuse him before God. Zechariah chapter 3 verses 1 to 3. You see, the devil reminds us of guilt. And how does he do it? By, by accusing us of certain things. And also our own conscience. Conscience can be overly sensitive. It can be weak. Our conscience could be callous or seared. It's not a, a reliable guide, but I'll tell you what it's like. It's like an fault alarm, and there's an alarm here in the church, and sometimes it goes off, and it may be a bit of dust. It may be a spider. It's, it's certainly over-sensitive. And off it goes. And you see, we have got to face up to this condemning voice. So you've got an accusation here. Who is he that condemneth? And then you've got the answer to this voice of accusation when you're accused of guilt by an unbelieving world or the devil <coughs> or your own conscience. And here's the answer. It's found in Christ. It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who's even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. In other words, the answer to this accusation, this being accused of guilt, is the person and work of Jesus Christ not found in self, not found in self-esteem, not found in self-awareness, not found in self-reliance, not found in a feel-good factor. The answer to the problem is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And I've already told you, he presented four pillars of the gospel. It's as if Paul's saying, who is he that condemneth? Here's my answer. Christ died for my sins on the cross. Christ is risen again bodily from the dead because he has purchased for me a full and free and forever justification. And I have been justified by God, legally declared righteous. All my sins are pardoned. They're under the blood. Yes, the world can accuse. Yes, the devil can accuse. My own conscience condemned me. But Christ ascended into heaven for me. Christ is at God's right hand for me. Christ, the sacrificial, newly slain lamb, is praying for me. He could come. Remember, we sung the hymn a few weeks ago in the Wednesday night prayer meeting. For you, I am praying. And I'm taking the words of that hymn and putting them into the words of Christ. And that's a work that Christ is actively involved in this morning. Christ is preeminently involved in that work. He, 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 he is continually engaged in that work. What a great encouragement. Do you need encouragement this morning because you're down and dispirited? And maybe you're not only feeling guilt, but you're struggling with sickness and illness. Well, well Christ is in heaven. And Christ is praying for you. And Christ is pleading your cause. He knows your name and your need. You're precious to him. You're his purchased possession. Oh, we need to understand this. We need to grasp this. I believe the heavenly intercession of Christ is a, a much needed, yet sadly neglected doctrinal truth that's an integral part of the gospel. Let's apply this in our lives. Let's begin to enjoy the freedom that we have of the gospel. He makes this announcement. Who is he that condemneth? 
It is Christ that died. Now, I want to just stress this. Because this is the foundational basis for the intercession of Christ. You've got this accusation. You've got this answer. The personal work of Christ. But he says, it is Christ that died. And then he tells us, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And the ground and basis for Christ's work of heavenly intercession is the, the blood atonement, his substitutionary sacrifice. His intercession is a result of his blood atonement at Calvary. We could ask the question, on what ground does Christ intercede for us in heaven? It's not the ground of moral prevalence. No, it's the virtue and value of the shed blood of Christ. As Christ prays for us, he does so on the ground of the work of atonement. Over there in the book of Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we read this in verse 19. Verse 18, for the context, for as much as you know that you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. And over there in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9, and in the um, verse uh, 12, we read this tremendous statement. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Maybe if I read one other reference and then I'll explain what I want to emphasize in Hebrews chapter 12. We read this in verse 24. These are the things that are in heaven. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Where is Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant? He is in heaven. And what else is in heaven? Hebrews chapter 12 mentions seven things. Here's another one. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now, I believe the blood of Christ is literally in heaven. I, I don't believe that it just congealed in the ground. I believe that the blood of Christ is incorruptible. The blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of heaven is, is present in heaven. Now, how? Um, I, I can't fully understand that. I, I can't fully answer how that it's there. But I do know this, the blood is a voice. And I know it's a big subject, but what I'm saying this morning is this, and I've tried to be very simple, because I've read a lot of material this week that it was very, very technical very theologically heavy and doctrinal. And I was thinking, well, Lord, I can't go and preach that because the people just need encouragement and help. But, but here's the kernel of what Hugh Martin says in his work on the atonement. The atonement forms the intercessory work of Christ and is the basis for it. So the intercessory work of Christ is the result that flows from the work of atonement. And the atoning blood sacrifice of Christ forms the very ground and basis for that intercessory work. The fundamental basis of the intercessory work of Christ. When you have an accuser, 
of guilt. What's the answer? It's the personal work of Christ. And this announcement is made. The atonement forms the basis for that intercessory work. The second thing I want to emphasize this morning is this. The factual benefits of the intercessory work of Christ. If you look at our text in Romans 8, you've got the entrance of Christ here. Look at the words in verse 34. Who is even at the right hand of God. Where is Jesus Christ today, young people? You can't see him. The reality is he's entered into heaven itself. Over there in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9 uh, and verse uh, 24, we um, read the words, For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, it mentions his ascension. And we're told there, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. The emphasis is on the word heaven. And over there again in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, we read, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. Now, now the right hand of God is really an anthropomorphism. God, remember, is a spirit. He doesn't have literal hands and literal feet. But But it helps us to understand something. Due to our finite minds, the right hand is the place of power the place of privilege, the place of position. Psalmist said, In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And and what is the Lord Jesus? If he's in heaven, where is he located? He sits. And the thought that he sits means that he rests from his finished work. He has offered a once and for all sacrifice for sin. No other sacrifice is necessary. He's done it. He's done it once for all. He's done it once and forever. There's there's no repetition. And on the basis and strength and ground of this once and for all sacrifice, he entered into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. In other words, he's taken his seat beside his heavenly father. If we contrast the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple, there was one item of furniture that you not find recorded in all of the Bible to do with the tabernacle and the temple. You know what it was? There's no chairs in heaven. It's not amazing. No chairs in the tabernacle of the temple. In other words, the working priest could never rest. He had to keep on day and daily offering the same sacrifice of rams and bulls and goats. But the Lord Jesus, he came to offer himself a once and for all sacrifice for sin. And when he had offered that once and for all sacrifice for sin, he entered into heaven. And when he entered into heaven, he sat down at God's right hand. That's his position. No other priest ever sat down. Not even the high priest in the day of atonement sat down in the presence of God. The Lord Jesus not only entered heaven and went to God's right hand, but we can actually pinpoint not only his exact location, but we can pinpoint his position. He sat down. He entered heaven and rested on the basis of his finished work. You see, we can announce today that Calvary 
and the work of Christ on the cross is complete. He, he said when he died, finished. It is finished, John 19 and 30. Calvary's a finished work. What Christ did, he did once for all. He did forever. It can't be repeated. Christ is in heaven. Christ is seated. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Well, I emphasize this for certain reasons. There's a group of people called Anglo-Catholics, and they maintain that Christ is continually perpetually offering himself in heaven. Now that sounds good, but it's totally and utterly false because Christ is not reenacting Calvary in heaven. He's not repeating Calvary in heaven. He's not perpetuating Calvary in heaven. What he did on the cross, he did once for all. Christ offered up himself once to God. A true propitiatory, substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And when he did that and died and was buried and rose again the third day from the dead, he entered into heaven and he presented the sacrifice of blood, which is in himself, by the way. And he presented the blood is our high priest. And he sat down. He enters into his heavenly life of intercession. He enters into his heavenly intercessory ministry on the virtue of that ever fresh, powerful, speaking blood. You see, he has entered in. I'll tell you something else quickly. He has been exalted. Here's another fact. Over there, if you turn to the book of Acts this time, um, Acts, um, we'll, we'll go to Acts chapter 2 and verse uh, 33, although there's many references that we could turn to. Acts 2 and 33 says, Therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, there's our word, and being received of the Father, the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see, and here, you see, the right hand exalted the highest place of power, superiority and honor, the highest privilege, his by right, the most prominent place, the highest place of pleasure. All the pleasures of God are at God's right hand. He takes pleasure. In praying for his people. His humiliation is over. His exaltation is now. Over there in the book of Philippians. Chapter 2 and verse 9. If you were to contrast. Verses 5 right through to verse um, 7. And coming into verse 8. You'll discover the humiliation of Christ. And then from verse 9 onwards. You get his exaltation. It says this, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. You see, he's a prince and savior. He's the mediator of the new covenant. There's nothing lacking in him. 
You know, sometimes people have this notion that God needed to create us because God was lonely. Or God needed to redeem us because God needed someone to love. In the inter-Trinitarian personal relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that interpersonal relationship was perfect and complete. God needed nothing. He didn't need objects to love because he loved his Son and he loved his, the Holy Spirit, and they loved the Father. He didn't do it because he needed to do it. He chose to do it. He, he wanted to do it. God is self-existent. God is self-fulfilled. And what is true of God the Father is true of God the Son. And yet he chose this role in the covenant of redemption. Here's another fact. He has been enthroned. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20. Ephesians 1 and verse 20. We'll go to verse 21 a, a tremendous statement is made here of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Look at verse 21 now. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and that every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And it put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. He's above all. Demons. Angels. Archangels. The devil. Over all creatures. The psalmist called him O Lord God of hosts. You see, Christ is king now. King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, could I say this morning, he is king now. Get that into your head. He's the king of grace and the king of glory. He's not awaiting to be king in the future. When he comes, we'll see him as king. But, but he's king now. And as king, he's a Jesus to himself. Our hearts are stubborn. They're proud, they're evil, they're self-centered. We have no thought of Christ, no fear of God. And then the gospel comes. The Spirit's at work. And Christ, what does he do? He takes out the heart of stone. He gives a heart of flesh. He, he subdues that evil heart. He gives us a new heart. A heart that loves him. A heart that, that, that loves his law. A heart that uh, puts him first. A, a heart that wants to live for his glory. He restrains our natural bent to wickedness. He conquers his and our enemies. You see, he is active. Do you know he hasn't left the work of the gospel to us? Christ is at work in and through us. It's not that we work in our own strength or power or pray in our own strength or power or preach or practice godliness. It's, it's Christ at work in us. You see, some people have this notion that Christ is saying, but you know, I'm away up here to heaven, folks. And it's up to you now, your duty and responsibility. Go you out and win the lost and get them all into church and, and, and get them converted and saved. Well, you see, there are people who think like that. And I'll tell you what happens. Some preachers then decide, well, you know, to get a crowd, I'm going to ride my bicycle around the church next Sunday and I want everybody to come in and watch me. And people come in, they see this preacher making an idiot of himself. Or I'm going to skate up and down the aisle on a skateboard. Or I'm going to eat a live goldfish next Sunday so everybody come and see this. Or I'm going to eat a bit of coal. Now you're thinking, those things couldn't be going on in church. I want to tell you they are. And some even say, well, I'm going to put £500 in an envelope under a seat. 
and you don't know which seat it is. So everybody come to church next Sunday and whoever seat it is, they can keep the 500 pound. Well, well, that's a great way of getting people into the church. But is that the work of Christ? No, that, that's, that's man's attempt at manipulation and getting a crowd in. Christ is active. He hasn't vacated his position. Christ is on the throne and Christ gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he's never recalled him. That's why I'm totally opposed to the charismatic movement. I think of the blasphemy of some of these so-called Pentecostal leaders. I think of one in particular. And he stands on stage and blows on people and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. And they drop at his feet. And, and they glory in that. That's not the Holy Spirit. That's another spirit that's not of God. And of course, you see, sadly, today we have many fundamental churches, including free Presbyterians, and we bemoan the state of our churches. We bemoan the state of our cities. Our cities are cesspool of iniquities. And we, we live in days when preaching has little effect. But in the past, what did the old Presbyterians and the Methodists and, and, and so forth do? Well, well, they called for prayer. Nights of prayer, seasons of prayer, fasting before God and cried out for God to come because only God could help us. And that's what the church needs. We need the fullness and power of the Spirit. Could I tell you something else? Time's going. Think of his engagement over there in Hebrews chapter 8. We read this in verse 1 and 2. Now the things which you have spoken... This is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set in the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary. And of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched in none. Here, here's his engagement. What's he employed in? What is he doing? He's the minister of the sanctuary. Christ ministers in heaven. And he takes our prayers, weak as they are, sinful as they are. And he, he clothes them in his merit. And he perfects them. And he offers them to God on the ground of the blood. His work's objective. His work is sympathetic. His work is constructive and continually. His work is efficacious. His work is for the individual as well as with authority for the body of Christ. Prayers based on the blood sacrifice. One final thing. Not only the foundational basis of Christ's intercession and the factual benefits of Christ's intercession, but I want you to think of the, the focused benefits of the intercession of Christ. Here's what he does for us as, he, as we finish. He succors us. Hebrews chapter 2. And we read there in verse 18 these words. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he's able to succor them that are tempted. He secures us. Because if we turn over there to Hebrews chapter 6, we read in verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have an anchor that keeps the soul. Why? Because Christ in heaven is securing us by his prayers. He saves us. 
Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. He, he sympathizes with us. He says, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmity, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Hebrews 4 and 15. He, he speaks for us. You see, his intercession is the guarantee of our entrance into heaven. Because he not only saves us, but he succors us in the journey. He, he sympathizes with us. He speaks in our behalf. He supplies our need. He, he, he secures us. Robert Murray McShane said this, if I could but hear the prayers of Christ in heaven as if Christ was in the other room, I would not fear 10,000 enemies. But I want to tell you this, Christ is in heaven and it's like he's just in the other room mentioning your name individually and the needs of the church collectively. Here's the focused benefits that he has based in this factual blessing rooted in this foundational basis. Oh, that we would have a better understanding of the intercessory ministry of Christ.